Tonight on Farage, Boris Johnson is now the self-anointed high priest of climate change. But tell me, is it your number one priority? We'll look at the HGV crisis. Did a trade union make the problem a little bit worse? And joining me on Talking Pints, David Cameron's former chief of staff, Alex Dean. There was one final act of Boris Johnson's tour to the USA. He went to the United Nations last night to speak about climate change. And of course, remember, he's in the chair for the COP26 summit, which is coming up in Glasgow in a couple of months' time. Boris has been on quite a journey on this issue. He was pretty sceptical about climate change 15 to 20 years ago, or sceptical at least as a journalist. Uh, but as time has gone on, and particularly since he became Prime Minister, this appears to have become a bigger and bigger issue. In fact, I think, after last night's speech, the manner in which he delivered it, I think this is now becoming, for him, the defining issue, not just of his trip to the USA, but actually of his entire Premiership. And I wonder, is he right to do this? Let's have a look at Boris Johnson addressing the UN last night. We need the world to come to Glasgow to make the commitments necessary. And we're not talking, I'm afraid, about stopping the rise in temperatures. We can't do that. It's too late to stop the rise in temperatures. But to restrain that growth, as I say, to 1.5 degrees. And that means we need to pledge collectively to achieve carbon neutrality, net zero, by the middle of the century. And that will be an amazing moment if we can do it. And when Kermit the Frog, Kermit the Frog sang, it's not easy being green. You remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative, and it's right to be green. He, although he was also un unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. Well, that's Boris for you. I'm not quite sure that Kermit the Frog was that relevant, but there we are. Interesting, isn't it, that he's absolutely certain that if we take some measures uh, that he recommends that climate change will be limited to 1.5% in terms of rise. But he's literally playing God. Uh, now, as if any political figure can tell you exactly what will happen in the years to come. And whilst it's difficult to believe that with the world population now over 7.5 billion, that man is not making some impact on his environment, uh, it's also true to say there are other factors way beyond the control of Boris Johnson or anybody else, such as volcanic activity or sunspot activity. But Boris Johnson has set himself up to do this, and we are going to cut carbon emissions. He was proud of the fact in the speech that our emissions are down by 44% since 1990. Well, if you de-industrialise, if you subsidise wind energy, if you make the cost of energy so high, it's not surprising that your cement works go, your steel works go, your refineries go, your chemical plants go, and both of your aluminium smelters close. What we've actually done in many areas of business is we've outsourced CO2 to India, China, and elsewhere. Now, I am not saying that this isn't important, but what I am saying is that Boris Johnson should not play God. 
What I am saying is that all of this isn't worth a light if China doesn't play the same game. And, and there was cheering last night in DC. Indeed, Stanley Johnson, uh, his father, was there last night. Isn't it marvellous? The Chinese have said they won't invest any more in overseas coal-fired plants. But then the Chinese built 61 new coal-fired power stations in the first six months of this year, so I'm not sure that's entirely relevant. Is it right that a Prime Minister um, from a country that produces 1% of the world's CO2 makes this his number one priority and that you have to go on paying the price for it? Now, I don't think that is the right priority. I think people are more worried about rising prices, particularly rising fuel prices. I think people are more worried about the pandemic and whether it'll return. I think they're more worried about whether their kids will ever be able to afford a house or the lifestyle that they've had. And I think he's making a mistake, politically at least, in making this his number one priority. But as ever, please tell me what you think. Has Boris got this right? Is it absolutely the number one priority for him and for our country? Want your point of view, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me to talk about this is Bob Ward, Policy Director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. Bob, thank you. Good evening, Nigel. For coming in to the studio. It is remarkable. I mean, I, mean, I get the fact that he's chairing COP26, and that clearly is important on the world stage. Astonishing to which Boris Johnson now appears to be the most committed world leader to carbon reduction. Um, and that's uh, as much a political position, I sense, as anything else. But just tell me this. All these countries will come together in Glasgow. Are the Chinese going to be there? China will certainly be there. The question is whether President Xi Jinping's going to be there, and I think he will. Do you? He will be in Milan for the G20 summit on the eve, and I think China is recognises this is an important issue for them. Like every other country in the world, the reason why this is the number one priority is this is about the kind of world we leave to our children and our grandchildren. And the science is very clear. The climate is changing. It's being driven by man. And the world is becoming a more risky and dangerous place for everybody. And if you care about your children and your grandchildren, you do care about what's happening to the climate. On the other hand, we know that the changes we have to make to our economy have lots of other benefits. We're going to create really? economic... Loss? Well, what, loss of the massive loss of jobs. Well, well, you gave the example of us cutting our emissions by 44% yeah. since 1990. What you mm. didn't mention is our economy grew by 78%. Can you imagine? Period. Can you imagine? So can you imagine? In, 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 hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're quoting the Prime Minister here. Can you imagine how much the economy would have grown if we hadn't exported so much of our manufacturing to other parts of the world? Well, why do you think we ended up with jobs going to places with lower la labour costs? I mean, people didn't go to open factories in China because of climate. They went there because labour costs are lower. So, but Bob Ward, you want to push back, if you want to push Bob, back Bob, on Bob, the hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Labour costs, ahead. I accept there are cheaper labour costs elsewhere in the world. I accept that. However, for lots of heavy engineering, for chemical production, 
for steel production, for aluminium production, energy is the most important part of that. And what we've done, by mistakenly, in my view, going for wind, is we have made our electricity very expensive. For much of the last 15 years, we've had the most expensive energy in the Western world. So we've kind of forced this stuff over, you know, overseas. I mean, look, you say the science is settled. Well, well no, hold on. Let's but there are others that would energy. disagree with Let's you. talk about the cost of energy, because people will yeah. see the cost of energy has gone up right now. Yeah. And why is that? It's not down to wind. It's down okay. to the fact that natural gas is now much more expensive. And the reason why is because it's a finite resource and our supplies of it are nowhere near meeting demand. It is our dependence on natural gas that is responsible for the costs going but, up. But it's not clean energy. Before, the solution before, is going to be domestic sources of clean energy. Before be the gas price went up, before the gas price even started going up and being discussed, all right, people were already paying more than 20% extra. Now, estimates vary, but 20% is a very conservative estimate. Some say it's high as 35. They were paying more than 20% more on their domestic electricity bills. Uh, companies were paying the same, you know, those that needed it for manufacture. All of it to subsidise wealthy people who own land and put wind turbines on it, and big foreign companies building offshore wind farms in the North Sea and elsewhere. I, I mean, surely... Bob, my point to you is this. If you want to carry the public... If you want to carry the public on this, and you do, because you believe in what you believe in, and I absolutely accept that, I understand that, you've got to understand that outside of London, outside of the think tanks, outside of what you do, outside of Westminster, out there in, in, in the country, there is great scepticism about CO2 and climate change. And people are saying, why the hell... Are we paying a huge price for this when China's doing nothing? And you've got to carry people with you. And, and, I, and I honestly, I plead with you, if you really care about this, stop the poor giving the rich all this money. So the great scepticism you talk about doesn't exist at the level <laughs> you talk about. Less than 10% of people now think climate change isn't happening or that it's man. The vast majority ah. of people in surveys... But should they pay the, the price? Climate is changing. Should they well, pay the okay, price? So, so let's talk about the costs here. Yeah. So we have two choices here. We either pay for the costs through the impacts of climate change, so you pay more by dealing with the damage caused by flooding that makes our food more expensive, that damages our property. These are the costs that we we've pay had, for. We've had flooding for thousands yeah, but of we years. Get, the flooding is getting worse. The rainfall... I... You look at the Metalfish data, you can see for yourself, rainfall is getting heavier in this country and around the world, and it's basic physics, Nigel. It's basic physics. Is it global the warming or is gets, it climate change? The warmer... Get, the warmer the atmosphere gets, yeah. the more moisture it holds, so when it rains, it rains harder. That is why we get more flooding events like we've been seeing all around the world. Not just in the UK, but in China, in Germany. These are all events that are becoming more severe because of climate change. And that's the trade-off here. You either pay for that... If you want to pay through people's lives and livelihoods being destroyed by more the, extreme weather... Those effects, that have been flooded. Or you pay up front. Those, and remember... Hold those on, that have been me, flooded, Let me just finish Those that have been flooded the in money is a few thousand, isn't it? The money that you pay for investments in new forms of energy actually create jobs. You're talking about jobs that are created here. Yeah, I would think probably green jobs against jobs we've lost in other sectors... It's something like three or four to one more jobs have been lost than have been gained 
uh, through you the green sector. You think through climate change? It's not through climate change. I mean, no, no, I'm saying... Again, I, I'm saying you're making when the you mistake of people, thinking that jobs when you in give, China because of when climate, you give they people, don't. It's labour costs. We close the steel... So you want low labour costs? We close the steel you want to pay people less? Go we ahead. close the steelworks in Redcar because it was unsustainable. The cost of energy was too expensive. We, do you know, we now import... China's we now import, is not we now import, cheaper we now import, because of climate policy. We now import it's cheaper five, because labour costs are cheaper we, in China. In many businesses, I repeat the point, energy cost is more important than cost of labour. We're now importing five million tonnes of coal a year. We have a problem with the gas price and gas supply. Yet, up in the Bolan Forest, we have... That we have a massive reserve of shale gas. Should we not be, should we not be fracking and taking out some of that shale gas? Because we're going to need it, aren't we? If shale gas can be extracted without causing environmental damage locally and that local populations agree, mm -hmm. then go ahead and do it. But okay. don't make any mistake to think that that's going to solve our problem. There's nowhere near enough shale gas to make any difference to the price of natural gas because the gas that we buy on the European market well, will, not, will not change because of the small amount of shale gas we have. We, could we be, currently we could be are reliant on massive imports of natural gas. You will, all you will do in, with shale gas, and this is what the experts have shown, is all you're going to do is replace the gas that is going offline mm. in the North Sea. It is not going to change it. If we make we, ourselves more dependent Bob, on natural gas, we, could be we self, will pay the price that we're seeing now. We could be independent. Last question. And it's an important one in terms of strategy. Given that electricity generation is about 40%, I think, of, of, of all the CO2 that we produce in this country. Is it time to say that the only reliable form of energy available to us right now that actually does not release CO2 is modern nuclear energy? Is that the way we need to go? I'm in favour of keeping nuclear and for it being part of a mix. We want a diversified, clean energy mix. But also solar and wind also has a role to play. We do need to have developments in storage... But they are coming I've been along. hearing that for 20 years and none of it's ever happened. Well, it's, that's... None of it's ever wrong. happened. If you're telling me Never that happened. the story of batteries has not improved in your not, mobile not phone, to power. then it's completely Not wrong. to power the national grid. <laughs> and, 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 On the scale. And finally, Bob Ward, time. finally, Give Bob time, Ward, to the people at home watching this or watching it on Catch Up, should they be more worried about climate change than about jobs, prices and their kids? These are not the choices. Changing to a low-carbon, clean, efficient economy will create better jobs, better growth, better climate all round for us. They're exactly yep. the same. Well, I tell you what, if it can be done without taxpayer subsidy, I'd be with you in many, many ways. Thank you for coming and joining us here. And there we are, folks. We have a good, healthy, open debate here. Should it be our number one priority? Is Boris right? to have appointed himself the high priest of climate change, because very, very clearly he has. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, moving on to another subject, the HGV driver crisis. And goodness me, this is now beginning to get really very, very serious. We've got petrol companies telling us that they're going to be closing their forecourts. We've even got some of the suppliers of beds to the National Health Service, suggesting they might not be able to get beds there. We have a problem, a real problem, 
with HGV drivers. We're short of them. It's not just us, though. Spain are short of them. Poland's short of them. We have a problem, but I wonder whether our problem has been exacerbated by something, a piece of news that I don't think had anything like the coverage that it ought to have done. And here's what it is. The Public and Commercial Services Union, working at the DVLA down in Swansea, went on strike about conditions related to safety and COVID, and that strike went on until the end of August. I'm amazed that mainstream media didn't cover it because it was remarkable that the union itself actually boasted that their, on their first day of action, there were 3,000 extra applications for drivers to make sure they've got the right health certificates in place. An extra 3,000 people went onto the list. Have one trade union made our HGV driver crisis more serious? And why have our mainstream media not had this debate? Well, joining me to talk about this is Lawrence Bolton, Managing Director um, at the National Driving Centre. And Lawrence, uh, this story, it's barely touched the radar, has it? You're absolutely right, Nigel. Um, it hasn't made headline news uh, as a contributor to the LGV driver shortage. Why? I mean, I mean, if they're boasting that on day one, a further 3,000 applications piled up, this must have made a material difference. It absolutely has. I mean, the DVLA in Swansea receives 60,000 individual pieces of correspondence a day. So that's where they've, they've striked um, and the stage walkouts are for, to cause maximum pain and disruption to the process. With the way that things are at the moment, with the driver shortage, this is the underlying driver of why things are bottlenecking and, and people aren't getting through. Potentially, I mean, they're currently sitting on a reported 1.4 million backlog of applications, which is a tremendous amount. Mm. Absolutely, of all kinds. I mean, LGV applications are just some, uh, you know, a part of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it all depends on how the government are going to continue their their talks with the PCS. Now, if it continues, that will continue to mount and then new drivers will not come into the industry to fill the jobs that we desperately need. Shouldn't this be a big priority for Grant Shapps? I've, I've barely heard him say a word on it. It absolutely should be a big priority for Grant Shapps. Um, the government are in a very difficult position at the moment um, because they've sort of put themselves into the position, potentially the corner, where they want to, to their credit, train domestic UK people yeah. to fill, fill the gap um, of the driver shortage. Um, but then there are these causations underlying with the DVLA that they need to straighten out in order to keep things moving. And are you at the National Driving Centre lobbying government hard to pull their finger out and get this sorted? We're doing our very best, um, but we are just a small cog in the machine. Um, and, you know, our, our voice is only heard so far. Um, external pressure will come from the media, the public, and it all becomes very relative to the everyday person when McDonald's aren't having milkshakes, Nando's chicken, and people are talking about Christmas being yeah. cancelled. Yeah. So that's probably a greater voice than us individually saying, you know, Mr. Shaps, can you sort things out and get things moving down in Swansea? Yeah, quite. Lawrence Bolden, thank you for joining us. Now, uh, we've been in touch, of course, with the Public and Commercial Services Union, and they have responded uh, to our request. Uh, we've asked them, you know, have you caused a major problem here? Have you made what was bad already 
worse. And Andrew Lloyd, the PCS national officer, has said the strike at DVLA by PCS members has absolutely nothing to do with the shortage of HGV drivers. This is a strike that was settled with an agreement in early June this year after just a few days of action. That agreement was withdrawn by ministers at a Transport Select Committee. The chair, Conservative MP Hugh Merriman, said that because of their intervention, the industrial action was on the ministers. Furthermore, during this dispute with DVLA, PCS wrote to them asking them to prioritise key workers' licences. DVLA did this previously. The DVLA had not responded to the PCS request to take such action. So we went on the strike. We boasted on our website that on day one of the strike, the number of forms that had not been dealt with had ridden, risen by 3,000, but actually it's nothing to do with us whatsoever. Well, there you go. In a moment, we will talk about an upcoming row with France that I think could be of epic proportions. Should cutting carbon emissions be Boris Johnson's number one priority? Indeed, is it your number one priority? I suspect in many parts of the country that it is not. Your reactions that have come in so far. Andy on Twitter says, no, green is not my priority and they've lost my vote. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because at the general election of 2019, they didn't present themselves as being the Green Party, but that is actually pretty much where they are today. Christian on email says, I think Boris is right. It is the conservative thing to do to ensure our children inherit a country where the air isn't polluted. Do you know, it is the conservative thing to do to want to conserve and to keep things right. I do agree with that entirely. And, and actually, you know, part of that speech, when Boris was talking about trees, planting trees, uh, supporting peat bogs, doing things naturally uh, that can make a big difference to the sequestration of carbon dioxide. Those parts I agree with 100%. It's just this whole issue of taxpayer money. It is just this massive transference of wealth from the poor to the rich, all in the name of climate change, never explained and never debated. This is the thing that really, really upsets me. Richard on Twitter says, Boris has put climate first since stepping out with Carrie. I knew someone would say this. He has no mandate from voters. This will be the defining topic of his downfall. Neil on email says to me, unless Boris and the Tories stop this green nonsense and frack for gas, the economy will be ruined and they'll be thrown out at the general election. Well, they may be thrown out at the general election, but in favour of... The Labour Party, well, we'll see, it's their conference next week, and already the left of the party are fighting very hard against Starmer. It could be the most interesting Labour Party conference for some time, and GB News will be there throughout all of it. Now, our relationship with France, well, it's been up and down, of course, over centuries. Uh, but generally, we fall out over little things, but we tend to agree on very, very big things. But we've got some major problems here. Firstly, we've got what's happening across the English Channel. I spoke to you yesterday about this and said it would be a big day yesterday indeed. Another 460 people uh, were taken in 
through Dover yesterday. But we also have the Northern Ireland Protocol, on which France and the European Union don't wish to budge. It was Barnier's poison pill. Uh, Boris Johnson thought somehow we could get round it, but it appears that we can't. And now, what has sent them absolutely potty? And as somebody wrote in the Telegraph today, no wonder there'll be no toys this Christmas. It's not because of the HGV shortage, it's because the French have thrown all the toys out of the pram. They have gone bonkers in the, wait, in the wake of the AUKUS deal, the deal where America and the UK are supplying the technology so that Australia can have modern nuclear-fired submarines. The French have gone mad, which is completely at odds with reality because the contract they had was to provide a technology that is 60 years old. It was already running late and running over budget. But they've gone mad and Macron is said to be in a dark rage. Uh, lots of unpleasant things have been said by French Europe ministers and foreign ministers. And for the first time last night, Boris did snap back. He said, what I want to say about that, meaning the French statements, is that I think just for the time, some of our dearest friends around the world need to prenez un grip about all this and donnez-moi un break. Well, that was Boris last night when he was asked about the continuing row. But, you know, this does really matter. Um, he also said over the AUKUS deal, this is fundamentally a great step forward for global security. It's three like-minded allies standing shoulder to shoulder and creating a new partnership for the sharing of technology. France's Minister for Europe, Clément Bone, described the agreement as a return into the American form of accepted vassalisation. And they're teasing Boris there because <clears throat> in the referendum, he did in the end say that we were... Uh, effectively a vassal state. So, look, it's a war of words between both sides. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because public opinion over what's happening in the English Channel uh, is, in some parts of the country, now the number one concern that voters have. It really is. And that's putting big pressure on the government. But it also matters because, unless we can sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol, we're going to have to ditch the Northern Ireland Protocol Otherwise, there is a genuine fear of unrest, perhaps even violence, returning to the streets of Northern Ireland, something that we never, ever want to see. But it's going to need some form of compromise. And if we were to ditch the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, would that mean that France and the EU would suddenly slap on tariff barriers, would close the ports at Calais? I just don't know. Well, joining me to discuss this is Charles-Henri Gaulois, President at Generation Frexit. So, it's very, very good of you, uh, Charles-Henri, to join us. Um, this is a proper row now, isn't it, between these two countries? Hello, Nigel. Yes, I think uh, I agree uh, from what you said. There is this crisis uh, linked to the submarine issue. Maybe I don't agree with you about the, the world analysis and about the, the capabilities of the submarines. But let's say that uh, there is this crisis. I see it's more between the US uh, and France and maybe uh, Australia. But it doesn't mean uh, to have a bad relation with the UK. I mean, Charles de Gaulle, you know, used to say that the, in terms of geopolitical, the states uh, didn't have some uh, friends, but they just have interests. And yeah. as you say, I think we share some very common interests. 
you can talk uh, about uh, the illegal immigration. It would be much more easier if uh, France was not in Schengen area. It will help to, to, to deal with that also much better for the, the French people and then for, for, the, for the British people. You've got also the, all the terrorist issue. We have to, to work together and not up about it. And you had a very interesting uh, chat before about climate change. And you talk about the nuclear energy. And it's actually the cheapest and the greenest uh, energy that you can find. And basically, uh, French people have a great capabilities and technology about it. So I think it's also, yes. uh, let's say, a field where, where we, we can work together. So it's a, it's a big issue. And I, I don't agree with the French position toward Brexit. It has begun well, with isn't Barney that, and Emmanuel isn't, Macron. Isn't that what this is really all about? Isn't it what it's really all about? Because you see, you know, when Le Monde uh, published that headline that said this is the first victory, the first Brexit victory for global Britain, it seems to have sent the French establishment absolutely mad. Aren't the French establishment resentful of Brexit and hoping that it becomes a failure? No, I think the first victory uh, was uh, the vaccine rollout. It was a total disaster, you know, in the EU. Uh, we went late, like three months late, because they has transferred uh, all the project to the European Union. If it were France only, it would have done the same as the UK, but it was the first big victory. And you, it's true, the, let's say, the Macron and all the Euro fanatics, what they feel is that the British uh, gets well after Brexit, and it will give some idea to other country to leave the bloc. So I'm sure that there will be this issue, but I don't think it's, it's the EU, it's more friends for the submarines because in the EU, you know that Germany and Sweden, for example, they try to store the market as well. So all this history of European solidarity, EU solidarity, it does not exist. It's just public position. <laughs> then no, <laughs> no, I'm sure that's right. But I have to say, even though I agree with some of what you've said, the submarines you offered Australia were 20th century technology, France was overpriced on the contract and the bill was running higher, late with delivery, and what we offered with the Americans was a 21st century solution. And you disagree with that, do you? Yes, I, I disagree because... <laughs> well, I tell, you what, I tell you what, we'll end the conversation there because it proves that we are certainly at odds over the submarine contract. And even though you're friendlier to Brexit uh, than the French establishment, it shows there is a problem. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And, and this is going to be a very serious row over the course of the next few months. Now, what the Farage? Australia which I used to think of as being a free country where people could live their lives. Unbelievably, in Melbourne, they're now in their sixth lockdown. And it's a real hard lockdown, and it's being enforced by the police in the most astonishing and extraordinary way. Uh, a series of protests going on day after day. And by the way, I'm not against tough policing. You know, I want people removed if they're sitting on the M25. Uh, but to see a situation in which Australian riot police are said to have fired rubber bullets at people protesting against lockdown, and just look at these scenes from Melbourne. I mean, actually, this is really scary stuff. Now, uh, you know, to be fair, uh, those who were protesting were pelting the police with golf balls, batteries, bottles. So it was ugly on both sides. But to think that the Australian police have fired rubber bullets 
to stop people from protesting uh, about lockdown. I, I, I have to say, I find the whole thing completely and utterly astonishing. And my other what the Farage? Well, I, I mean, have they, have the MCC gone completely batty? Because they have decided that no longer under the rules of the game, which are being rewritten, and the MCC are the guardians of the laws, no longer will people be called batsmen. They'll be called bassers. Now, quite why, I've no idea, because it's not an insult to female cricketers, because they can be batswomen if they choose to be. But even the MCC, which you would have thought was one of the most traditional sporting clubs in the world, appear to have been completely taken away by this woke tide where we have to change pronouns, change the language. They'll be batsmen to me as long as I'm watching cricket, let me tell you. In a moment, I'll be talking pints with Alex Dean, who was, for a bit, the right-hand man of David Cameron. But first, let's see what's coming up on Colin Brazier's show tonight from 8. Well, joining me now on Talking Pints is a familiar face to those that watch the other news channels because he appears regularly on all the other channels. Alex Dean, you're, you're always there, aren't you, on paper reviews and commentary, but you're here at GB News Talking Pints pouring your own beer. Sorry about that. No, that's all right. So I hope it's more fun coming to GB News than it is doing the others. It's a lot of fun. I don't get to do this on air normally. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you do do a lot of paper reviews. Yeah. And you do comment a lot, particularly on the conservative side of politics. Cheers. Your health. Um, and I guess, and that's a long time ago, but you were, for a period of time, chief of staff to David Cameron. In opposition, not in government. In opposition, and I understand that, I know that, but you're one of those people that's been very close to David Cameron. And, of course, you know, he became leader of the Tory party in extraordinary circumstances. David Davis was odds-on favourite. The bookmakers stopped taking money. You know, shiny David Cameron appeared, became the leader, became the prime minister, led us into the Brexit referendum where you opposed yep. his position and you were a very strong Brexiteer. Yeah. What was he like? What you see is what you get. Perfectly decent stick, instinctive conservative. Um, really? Uh, yeah, I don't think... Uh, he wouldn't, I think, say he was the most kind of deep-rooted of ideological people, but his kind of instincts were small-c conservative. Um, and I thought he did this country a great service, perhaps not intentionally, uh, but a great service in giving us the referendum. He didn't so, want to do that. No, I'll always be grateful to him for it, though. He didn't want to do it. He was forced into it, wasn't he? You, well, one could argue that there were lots of people that wouldn't have done it. And I think the majority... I think David Davis would, by the way, but I think a number yeah. of other people who were around the leadership at that time would not have gone so far as to give us a referendum. And um, for that, uh, even if you might think it was ill-judged on his part, given the perspective that he... Bear in mind, the government campaigned to remain. The Conservative yep. Party was neutral, but the government campaigned to remain. So from his perspective, you might think it didn't come off as they wished. But I'm still grateful for that biggest exercise in democracy we ever had. So, you know, uh, all, all in all, not a bad result. Yeah, as I say, I think it's the last, it's the last thing he wanted to do. I, I don't think he had much choice. I think the Europe issue had become so strong in the minds of so many Conservative supporters and yeah. donors and members of Parliament, they were leeching support to UKIP at what he felt was a dramatic sure. phase. But, he, but you're right, in the end, he did give it to us. But you uh, do, it's a bit weird that it's 
this conversation this way around, because I feel like I should be interviewing you. <laughs> the biggest reason that he had to do it was you. Yeah, I think that's uh, right. No, no, that's right. I mean, look, we, we got there, we won the referendum, we had years of agony afterwards, but you're, you know, FTI Consulting is your company, you're involved in all sorts of... Speaking in a personal capacity, he said, is drinking on air. Yeah, yeah, well, fine, but, but you're involved with all sorts of, of, of commercial issues, yeah. political issues. But, Alex, you're a lifelong Conservative. Yes. And we've been debating tonight and asking the public the question. You know, Boris Johnson uh, has now turned the Conservative Party into the Green Party. He has become the global high priest of carbon reduction. And he appears to be very happy for consumers to continue to pay very high prices for things because he believes unless we do it that way, that the world's all going to come to an end. And this is leader of a country that only produces 1% of global CO2. I don't think it's as much as that, but... Well, let's, OK. <laughs> um, let, let's say that you're, you're right in that extreme view that it's 1%. Um, even if we close down UK PLC, yep. the increase in what we see from our friends in China would more than swallow it up. I thought it was a very neat parallel that the Chinese are bringing on in gigawatt power this year the equivalent of the entirety of European gigawatt output from yeah, power stations. Just astonishing. So, the, the, what, what we do in this country, the hair-shirt attitude, take your boiler out, get a new car, yeah. the idea that we should be beating up people uh, for not quite being green enough, when actually the world's biggest polluters are exempt from the Paris Accords, for me, that's for the birds. And I, and I, whatever but, it's else... your, but here's the point. Yeah. It's your party that's doing this. This is a Conservative Party that is doing this. It's a Conservative Party that has uh, taken all sorts of government powers under coronavirus and keeps wanting to extend and extend and extend uh, the dates through which they can use those powers. It's a Conservative Party that is tying itself to massive additional spending in a National Health Service that many would argue, yes, we want it, but we want it reformed. Yeah. It's a Conservative Party that has done nothing for small business. I mean, literally nothing for small business. Six million people out there running their own businesses, acting as sole traders. There's been no supply-side reform since Brexit. I mean, and this is what people are asking, and not just me. I promise you, out there in the country, people are saying, what is happening to the Conservatives? So let me try and take those one by one. First of all, I agree that there should be an aggressive tax-cutting agenda, and that's at the heart of what both you and I uh, believe. And I do think, and you can say it's an intangible or a what-if, so we'll never know, but I think if we hadn't gone through this coronavirus period with an 80-seat majority, we would be seeing vociferous demands on my side of the Conservative Party for mm. tax cuts. Right? Now, no-one can deny that coronavirus has changed the world, sure. changed the agenda in that environment, but... You know, there is a low-tax agenda in the Conservative Party, and believe me, it's alive and well. So, on the tax point, and I think that that, that point uh, we can definitely make progress on as we come out of the pandemic. Small businesses, I completely agree. When you take big yeah. government action, inevitably, the people who are um, most proximate to what government does are the largest businesses. This is one of the reasons that the European Union has been propped up so long, right? The left-wing case for Brexit might not be your or my perspective, but but God bless them, they were in the trenches. The left-wing perspective of Brexit was that the EU was a corporatist stitch-up done in the interest of big businesses and big banks. You know what? Well, they weren't wrong. Not completely wrong. Do you, right? so, so, do you know, so, you won't be, I, I had a look yesterday 
I had a look yesterday at Eurostar trains to Brussels. Now, you and I met many times on Eurostar. Had a few drinks. And we may have done. And I, I looked. Do you know, there are now only three Eurostar trains a day to Brussels. Yeah, it's pandemic only. Be because, it'll, it'll no, 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 no. It's because the lobby isn't going to Brussels anymore. Yeah. The lobby isn't going to Brussels. So that's where we... Oh, I see. Yeah, so oh, I see. thousands so of the, people... The great jamboree isn't on the train anymore. Yeah, all, um, looking for, all looking for big legislative changes. But I'm asking you about it. What I'm really yeah. asking you is this, rather than going through the whole list. Yeah. Is this still a Conservative party? Oh, it absolutely is. And I, I wanted to get to your other, the other ones you were raising. Go on, if you wish to. Yeah, yeah. no, because I, for me it's important that the direction of travel for the Conservative Party remains one that believes in freedom for the individual uh, and directed towards a free market in which in people can make their own choices in a lowest tax possible environment. In fact, that's the only, my only complaint about things like the Laffer Curve, which people on our side of politics often cite, is that it implies that the right thing to do is to get it just up towards the maximum take before you tip over into um, the tax rate to being too high. That's for the birds, for me. The, you should tax as low as possible while still being able to run a functioning state. That's the point for me. But this, government, but this government are putting taxes up. No, but so they, I, have to, I have to say, we've had a pandemic in which every government right. faces that kind of crisis. Right, I tell you what, if I, if, I, if, I, if I give them a pass on that one, yeah. of the, which I don't actually, but if I do... Uh, I, but, but we should let them but, keep going then. But what I, else? I still have, I still but have... what else are they going to do that's conservative? Well, I think that the, the, so we talked about tax cuts, and I believe we're going to get back to that agenda. I secondly think that the free schools, there now. the free schools and academy agenda in education, is one that this government is pretty committed mm -hmm. to. I mean, bear in mind, I, I, I hold no brief to talk for them, but that's I know that. Yeah, but I, I think that that is at the core of the belief um, in, in the Conservative Party about education. I don't think that this is a government that is like its Labour predecessors. The point about Gordon Brown was that he would spend money on the NHS, not for a result. I don't care but, about... But I'm trying, I don't care about I'm Gordon I'm trying to explain Brown. the differential in mindset, because that's what you were asking about, what's Conservative. Yeah. Brown spent money on the NHS, not for a result, but to be able to say he'd spent money on mm. the NHS. This government's going to spend money on the NHS because we've got a backlog of two years of operations not performed, mm -hmm. people not treated, because we turned our NHS into a COVID healthcare system. Now, you can say they got, we could have done it better... Nevertheless, there is a real need to spend money in the NHS for this defined purpose and for this defined time. Yeah. And unlike most governments, they've been honest to say, this is why we're taxing you and this is what it's for. Name me one other thing that government does that for, apart from the bloody BBC. The only, ah, the only, the only ring you're... fence tax that we face, now, the only now. hypothecated tax that we have. So should we scrap the licence fee? Absolutely. Well, no, we shouldn't just scrap the licence fee, we should scrap the BBC. We should, I mean, the BBC is no so longer f f fit for purpose. Dominic Cummings, for all his faults, and there are many, was the one radical thinker on issues like this that was there within number 10. He's gone. Boris Johnson would never scrap the BBC, would he? I don't know. I was. Um, I did a lot of um, media events with John Whittingdale, who's also just left yep. uh, government, who yep. would always say that Alex Dean gives him something to be to the left of, because he would say, you know, I want to radically reform the BBC, mm. and I would say mm. it's time to get rid, rid of, of the BBC. And I do worry that, that some of that, um, that dynamism that was in that department um, may have been lost in translation. You, very often in transition, you, things matter about individuals. And um, the, what happens with Channel 4 is tied up with that as well, because they were halfway through that when they did the reshuffle. Yep. But if you put the personalities to one side, 
I do think this is a government that is more sceptical about what happens with the BBC than any government in my lifetime. Now, we can always wish for what happened over our shoulder. I wouldn't have renewed their charter last time. But mm. we are where we are. Mm. And I think that this is a government well, that's going to hold their feet to the fire Alex, more strongly than anyone else. You're giving this government the benefit of the doubt. A lot of people out there getting very sceptical. But on a lighter, slightly lighter note, I think... Your new book is ah. out. You know, we must talk about this. Lessons from history, hidden heroes and villains of the past and what we can learn from them. And this is about public figures, political figures, but there's one particular story uh, that stood out that I want you to tell because it's remarkable. And it's about Sir Walter Bromley Davenport. So share that little uh, story with us. First of all, you're very kind. And I show how much of an amateur I am, not to have even brought a copy to crop up <laughs> and put it to the camera. Walter Bromley Davenport was a long-term uh, backbench MP, very briefly made it into the Whip's office. And he was a man after our own hearts in lots of ways. He'd done his time in, in the military, and we respect all who've done their, their service. And, and he would castigate um, younger MPs and say, you junior officers, no discipline. He would forever shout at Labour MPs saying, get your hands out of your pockets. Uh, but in his brief and relatively inglorious time as a, uh, a whip, uh, Walter Bromley Davenport uh, espied in the distance someone near, as the clock neared 10 o'clock in the last vote, well before family-friendly hours, yeah. but it saw someone fleeing the Palace of Westminster and he bellowed the name uh, uh, of his MP and the blighter didn't even turn around. He thought, you sod. Chased him down the... the corridors of Westminster and gave him a hearty Bromley Davenport boot up the bum and only when said MP fell down the stairs did it turn out that it wasn't the MP, it was the Belgian ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't make them like uh, they used to. Uh, that's, that's, that's proper whipping. And, and we know of course about the villains in politics, lots of villains in politics, MPs that have been to prison and all sorts of things. Yeah. But for you... Having written this book, yeah. having spent your whole life in politics and current affairs and research for this book, who do you see as the heroes? The heroes for me are people who do the right thing, knowing that it's going to cost them personally, knowing it might even stymie their entire lives, but do it anyway. And there's umpteen examples in the book of people who did that during the Holocaust, whether they were in Germany, in occupied Poland, in neutral countries like Portugal that were fearful of their uh, neutrality and seeking to, um, to, uh, to pacify the, the Axis powers, or, or uh, those who sought in their small ways to try to do the right thing, even as what everything uh, around them was, um, mm. was raining fire. Mm. And um, those stories, I think, are remarkable. I, I also told, told the story of Stanislav Petrov, who was in the bunker in the Soviet Union when the warning came that the Americans were um, launching a nuclear war against them. And he just thought it was wrong. And he held out. And he said, I don't believe it. And he single-handedly stopped this world disappearing into nuclear war. Now, he was not thanked by the Soviet Union. In fact, he was demoted, moved sideways into yeah. mental breakdown uh, and into obscurity. But, my goodness, we would probably not be sitting here today. I like that. Not for him. I like that. It's a good story. Alex, thank you for joining us. Well, that was Alex Dean. And after his all-out launched assault on the very existence of the BBC, you may not be seeing much more of him doing paper reviews there.
Right, it is time for the last part of the show for this week. It is Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in and I get no previous side of them at all. We've had some real tough ones this week, actually. Adrian, via email, asks me, Hi, Nigel, great show you have. I mean no offence, but as a businessman, why do you stand up for the ordinary working class? Because nobody else stands up for them. Nobody else, frankly, cares for them. And the Labour Party, which came into existence to support them, is now, I'm afraid, a North London, Islington elite that has completely lost touch. And I want a society in which people, regardless of background, have got a chance, through their own efforts and a bit of luck, to get on and advance in society. And I think what we've seen, we go on about diversity the whole time. We must have gender diversity. We must have ethnic diversity. But what about class diversity? How many people are there in the House of Commons from genuine working class backgrounds? The answer is pitifully few. I want to live in a country of social mobility based on people's ability, not where they're from. Julie, on email, asks, have you considered installing an ejection button like Graham, Nor Graham Norton used to have to your guest chair? Well, I have to say, I thought Alex Dean's defence of Boris Johnson as Conservative was pretty weak. My finger would have hovered, but I wouldn't I'm quite... I wouldn't quite I'm have... Still and he is still here. Finishing my beer. <laughs> well, you might better help us up with the questions. Paul, on email, asks me, if you had to vote Labour or Conservative, who would it be? Well, I couldn't vote for the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn under any circumstances, because uh, it was hard left and dangerous. I couldn't vote for the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, because I wouldn't have a clue who to vote for. So, really, the choice now is Labour or the Green Party, isn't it? There isn't a Conservative Party. That's gone. It's now a Green Party. Um, look, you know, I, I, I wanted Boris Johnson to win in 2019 because we'd seen the betrayal of Mrs May, and here was a chance, finally, I think after the Brexit party, give them a good kick up the backside, to actually get Brexit over the line, and it worked. Uh, but I've been a bit disappointed ever since. Gary on Twitter finally asks me, Alex on Talking Pints, not sure he realises the beer is just a prop. <laughs> He's supping away, ready for another round before the show ends. The only guest that's gone on to a second not, not drink for me. within the 15 minutes of Talking Pints. Yeah. It's quite an achievement. Thank, Thank you, you for coming in and joining us. Thank you to all of you uh, for being with us this week. I'll be back on Sunday morning at 10 with my panellists on the political correction. Back here next Monday at 7 o'clock.